again. And we'll start reading at verse 8 and read down to verse through verse 14. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Not just in the future, but right now. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Jim, would you lead us? we come again once more to this wonderful sixth chapter of Romans. 
And I'm hoping, Lord willing, that uh, we'll, we'll be able to get to verse 14 this morning. But before we do that, I first want to just remind you why this whole chapter even exists. How does it come to pass that uh, Romans 6 is even in our Bibles? And uh, the answer is that this chapter was called forth only because salvation is solely and completely by grace. If Paul had been preaching in any way justification by works, or if he had been implying that in any way, shape, or form that ultimately the way we are saved is through our obedience or our performance or our merit, then nobody would have ever thought to come up with the question that the chapter begins with. If Paul had been preaching that somehow, you know, it's our morality or our performance that gets God's favor and justifies us, nobody would have ever said, well, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then why not continue in sin? Nobody would have ever said that. And so this uh, question that the chapter begins with is a test of of our understanding of the gospel. What kind of gospel do we have? What what kind of teaching are we giving? What kind of uh, preaching would we give if we were preaching this? Uh, if it's if we're preaching the gospel, the true gospel, the way it should be, as free and as gracious as it really is, then this question ought to come up. It ought to pop into people's minds. And uh, so the gospel is more free than you can ever imagine. You see, on the one hand, uh, salvation is not cheap. Grace is not cheap. But it is free. And it's so free that it's just mind-boggling when you realize how free grace is, that it has nothing to do with us. And what happens then, it ought to, if we understand grace, it ought to pop into our minds, well, if it doesn't have anything to do with us, then if salvation doesn't have anything at all to do with us, it ought to pop into your mind, well, what keeps people from just sinning? It's so free. That's how free it is. And so, um, it's a good opportunity to examine ourselves. What is my concept of grace? Do I realize what grace really is? And what grace really means? Grace means that no matter how wicked I have been and no matter how unworthy I am right now, God will freely receive me and justify me if I'll just give up and cast myself on Christ and His righteousness and believe in Him and trust in Him. Christ Jesus came into the world not to save good people. He came into the world to save sinners. And He'll save any sinner that'll just lift their hands and surrender and give up and give in to Him. So then the question posed in verse 1 and repeated in verse 15 is a good test of our understanding of grace. But by the same token, the answer that Paul gives in verse 2 down to verse 11 and in verse 16 down to verse 23, those answers are a good test of our understanding of regeneration. The question is a good test of our understanding of grace. The answers are a good good test of our understanding of regeneration. Um, Do I realize 
what really happens to a person when he becomes a Christian. What, what idea do I have in my mind of what happens to a person uh, when they become a Christian? Do I realize that regeneration is a miracle whereby my old man, my old self, the person that I once was, is crucified, or as Paul says in Colossians, is, is put off. The old person that I once was is put to death and done away with, and I'm raised up as a new creature, as a new person, as a new man, to walk in newness of life. Do I realize that that's what regeneration is and what salvation is? Or do I think of becoming a Christian as primarily a decision that I make? As Brother Paul said, it's uh, the idea that I'm stepping out of the line that's on its way to hell and step into the line that's on its way to heaven. That's what many people think happens in conversion. That conversion is a decision, primarily a decision that man makes. And you decide now that you're going to do something different. You're going to turn over a new leaf. Well, see, there's no miracle in that. And so the answers that Paul gives in this chapter tell us a lot about, and they're a good test of what kind of view we have of what happens to a man when he becomes a Christian. And what happens to a person when they become a Christian is the most radical thing in the world. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. I mean, we're talking about an absolute, total, radical transformation. And anyone here, that's if you're, if you're a young person who's made a profession of faith, maybe when you were younger... Um, or wherever you are, if you're a professing Christian, the question is, are you a new creation? Are you a new creature? Have you been radically transformed from the inside out and become something totally different than you were before? Now, that can happen very quietly. And sometimes we don't see much happening at the time. But down the line, five years later, you hardly recognize the person, you see, because they've become a new creature. And uh, the other side of the coin, sometimes somebody makes a profession of faith. You're very hopeful about them. It looks like a miracle's been done. They seem to be different. And five years later, they're less different than they were when they started. Now, what's that mean? It means that no miracle was done. That's what it means. They were temporarily stirred. You see, we're talking about a transformation in the innermost being that has effects that last forever. And that's what Paul's answer here is to this question. Shall we, let's, maybe we ought to just continue in sin. What keeps people from continuing in sin? He says, God forbid, don't you understand what happens in regeneration? Don't you realize how radical this thing is and how massive it is and how life changing? It goes right to the very core of a man's being, and it guarantees that he can't continue in sin when a person is truly converted. So these are are good tests. Uh, Both the question that comes up in verses 1 and 15 and the answer that Paul gives to the question are a wonderful test of where we are personally in our understanding of these things. Well, last week then we looked at verses 12 and 13 and Paul's exhortation to us not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies, but rather to present ourselves to God and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. 
Sin used to dominate our entire personality. If we're Christians, it doesn't dominate our entire personality anymore. Uh, We're new persons, but sin still does try to dominate in that part of us that has not yet been redeemed. And that's our mortal bodies. And I want to just stop right here for a while and talk about this. First of all, I've said this before, but I want to emphasize again, Paul's not saying that your physical body is somehow evil. That's a Greek idea. It's a Platonic idea. There was, a, You remember Epictetus said uh, the body is the prison house of the soul. Well, that's not, the Christ, that's not a Christian view. The body, it says in 1 Corinthians 6, there are, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. And the body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That's an incredible statement. The Lord is for the body. Incredible. And so there's nothing essentially evil about that physical side of man. There's nothing unspiritual about it, you might say. But nevertheless, because of the fall, things are out of whack. And even the physical appetites are out of whack. I mean, we have never known what it's like to live in an unfallen world with an unfallen body. And we're used to appetites that run wild. I mean, people eat food until they can't eat anymore, and then they go out and tickle their throat so they can throw up and go and eat some more. Or other side, other messed up things, you know. These are things that we have to contend with. And you cannot, you know all these things. I could go through a list, but you know them because you've experienced them. And so we are in bodies that are fallen. Mortal body, what's that mean? Corruptible, mortal, dying, subject to death. The bodies, he says a little later in chapter 8, the body is dead because of sin. And we haven't died yet physically, but the body's dead. It's a mess and it's dying right now. So, uh, the body itself is not sinful, but nevertheless, sin still does try to reign in our mortal bodies. Now, there's some interesting verses that I... We don't usually think about these things, and I want to give them to you just for you to consider. Philippians chapter 3. And you know, amazingly enough, a lot of growth in the Christian life comes from beginning to understand your mortal body and the things that you have to deal with. Some people are just given to melancholy and depression. Guys like David Brainerd, totally different makeup, you know, totally different makeup than somebody that's outgoing and so on. And uh, it's not like the other side is necessarily better. It might be just as bad in some cases to be a real outgoing, uh, exuberant, bubbling over type personality. That's got its own problems too. But here's what Paul says in Philippians 3 in verse 18. He says, For many walk of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, literally. Their God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame. You know, brag, it happens all the time in high school and in college. People sit around bragging about things they ought to be ashamed of. 
who set their minds on earthly things. So here's these lost people. They're down here. Their God is their belly. They're living in the realm of the flesh. They're living in the realm of the world. They set their mind on earthly things. But what about Christians? He says, our citizenship or our commonwealth is in heaven. That's where we're living. That's our sphere of life. From which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. King James says our vile body, which is, gives a little bit of a wrong idea, but it's strong. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Now, You ever hear that word conformity? In Romans 8 and verse 29, it says, He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. And we always think of that in terms of, you know, the moral image, the spiritual image, but it's more than that. He says right here that we're going to be conformed to the image of His Son in terms of a glorified body. Now let me give you another verse on this. Um, 1 Corinthians 15. And verse 47. Speaking of Adam and Christ. Verse 47, the first man, now we've looked in Romans at chapter 5 about being in Adam or in Christ. Verse 47, the first man is from the earth. Earthy. You remember he's made out of dirt. First man is from the earth. Earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. You realize Christians are heavenly? Now let's read the next verse, verse 49. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. He's predestined us to be conformed to the image of His Son. You see, that's it's true that it's a moral image, but there's more to it than just that. We're going to be conformed to the image of His Son. We're going to have a glorified body just like He has. And so, um, we don't usually think in these terms, do we? I mean, but He's saying, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. The body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit, capital S, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, He that raised Christ from the dead will also make alive your mortal bodies through His Spirit that dwells in you. See, He's already working in us, and He's going to transform us totally into His image. Well, um, back to Romans 6 then. Sin tries to reign in our mortal bodies. But in verses 12 and 13, we don't have to let it. Now, as I said last time, these verses have to do with our responsibility. And we're actively involved in this. This is not a passive thing. It's not let go and let God. It's not surrender 
You know, this is something active that we are to do. But the other thing that we need to remember is is that our actions are to be preceded by faith. They have to be preceded by faith. And that's what comes up in verse 11. In verse 12 and 13, he tells you to act. But in verse 11, he says you've got to believe something before you can act. He says, consider, verse 11, uh, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. The actions of verses 12 and 13 must flow from the faith of verse 11. Well, what is what is faith? Faith is just seeing and realizing and counting upon the fact of what's true. We have the idea that somebody has great faith. It's like they're conjuring up worlds that don't exist. That's not what faith is. A person that has great faith is a person that sees reality. You know, you want to know how to be humble. Well, all you have to have is to see reality, and that will make you humble enough. It's not like you have to pretend, you know, well, I really need to get a hold of some idea that I'm not such a big shot as I really am. That's not it. It's just if you just see the way things really are, you don't have any problem about that. You know, the problem is is whether you can scrape yourself up on the off the ground enough to go on. You know, Martin Lloyd Jones said after he after he gave what he thought was a good sermon on Sunday morning, he used to read Whitfield's biography on Sunday night, and that took care of the pride problem. You know, uh, all we need is to see the way things really are, and when you realize faith is just being renewed in the spirit of your mind to see the way things really are and to stop believing lies. To see, to see the way. I mean, do you realize we say that God spoke the universe into existence with a word and it didn't tax Him any? And then when it gets down to our daily lives, we can barely squeak out the idea that God's able to give me $10. Isn't it amazing? It's the difference between not, we're just not seeing reality. We don't really believe it. It's just talk. And so we need to be have be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to and to see the way things really are. And that's all verse 11 is. Count upon the fact. Realize that this is true. Really true of you. And then, then you can go on to verse 12 and 13 and you can begin to fight, as Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. See, there is a fight. But it's a fight of faith. And many times people start talking about the fight and there's no faith in it, no realize. I mean, in other words, this fight that we're to fight is not a fight to try to get some vantage point that hadn't been won yet, to try to accomplish something that Christ hasn't done. Christ has already won the battle and He's already seated in heavenly places and we're there with Him and we've got to believe that first and we fight from a position of victory, not to a position of victory. There is a fight involved, but it's a fight that's based on faith, that flows from faith. And I hope all of you don't know as much as I do about fighting the miserable fight of unbelief. Because if you don't believe God and what He has done for you, and what He that I really don't have to be defeated by this, you see, and you realize He's won the victory. And when you realize that and believe that, 
then you're able to fight from a position of victory. But if you don't believe, and if you won't believe, and if you're full of unbelief, you can struggle and flounder and fight. And as one guy said, I reckoned until I was a wreck. I mean, it just won't work. Because what's it mean? He was trying to pretend. He didn't believe that it really was true. I remember I used to read Romans 6, and I think, if, you know, if only I could believe that, it would really change my life. And finally, it began to dawn on me, wait a minute, this is what's true. It doesn't matter whether you believe it or not, this is what's true. Well, if you're a Christian, verse 11 is true of you. You've passed out of the realm where sin reigns and into the realm where grace reigns. And you're alive unto God now and you're dead to sin. Now, let me just point out something else here before we go on. And that is, we're not only dead to sin, we're dead to death also. And this has come up several times today in this, in the songs and in the sharing. The Christian has passed out of the realm of death. Now let me prove that to you. Notice what he says here concerning Christ, verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. The life that He lives, He lives to God. He's passed out of that realm and He's in this realm. And it says that uh, He's never to die again. He's never going back to that realm of sin and death. And if you look at it in terms of the Christian, we have died, we've passed out of the realm of sin and death. You say, well, how can you say that that the Christian is dead to this whole realm of death? I mean, we're going to die. Yeah, but you're going to die physically, but you are never going to taste death. Christ tasted death for every man so that we wouldn't have to taste it. And the Bible actually says what's going to happen to us is we're just going to go to sleep. We are not going to taste the pangs of death because the strength of the law is sin and death. You see, death, all those things are tied together and we've passed out of that realm. The sting of death is sin. The only way sin has any sting is is sin. And sin has been taken care of and we've passed out of that realm. Death's sting is gone for the Christian. For the Christian, now isn't this something? For the Christian, to die is gain. Do you see what I mean? We're free from death. If if all it's going to do is help you out and be a blessing to you, don't you think you've been freed from death? Paul says, having a desire to die. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So for a Christian to die is far better. And we we really are affected a lot by the world. And as Christians, we can start getting this mentality of dreading death and afraid of death. There's no reason for a Christian to be afraid of death whatsoever. I can remember when I first became a Christian. I think that was one of the most real things to me besides the fact my sins were gone. I had no fear whatsoever of death. If somebody said, you're going to face a machine gun outside the door, and I was just 16 years old, I had, I mean, I remember thinking about death, and it just, 
There was nothing. It's nothing to die because God is real and Christ is real and He's right there. And you know that you're right with Him and nothing can hurt you. Now, when we start getting that feeling, you know, that we're afraid of it and we're holding back from it, and, you know, usually what that's a sign that something's not real. We're believing lies in some way or we're holding on to something. And so it's good to be reminded, not only have we passed out of death's realm, but we're never going back there again. The death that He died, He died to sin once for all. You're never going back into that realm. You've passed forever into a different realm and you're never going to be back in that realm again. Because what's true of Christ is true of you. Isn't this wonderful? It's not just some kind of a deal where I'm out on probation. And you know, you might get thrown back into that whole deal of Adam and all that sin and condemnation. You're not. He, the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. The life that He lives, He lives to God. He's, in a, he's alive in a different realm. He's never going back there. He's never going to be subject again to those things. He's never going to be subject to death again. He's never going to be subject to sin again. And it says in Hebrews that He's going to come the next time without sin unto salvation. What's it mean without sin? Not to bear sin. Not to have anything to do with sin. He's in a different realm this time. First coming, He humiliated Himself or humbled Himself and came down and got in this realm of sin and death and made Himself subject to it in different ways. But the next time He comes back, nothing to do with that anymore. He's in this other realm and that's where He's going to stay from now on. Now that's true of the Christian. Listen to this, Exodus 14.13. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. Sounds like you're really doing a lot in this thing, doesn't it? Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. That's what happens when you're converted. I mean, you're right there. You see, you know what the old life is like. And God says, now look what I'm going to do in conversion. I'm going to cut you off from that. And you're never going back there again and you're never going to see it again. You're passing into a different realm now. The old realm is buried and left behind forever at the crisis of conversion symbolized in water baptism. You remember the Red Sea came back over them. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The picture there is water baptism. And so here's the crisis of conversion where Pharaoh, the devil, and Egypt, the world, is left behind and the old life is buried out there and there's the burial of the old man, you see. And he says, you're not going to ever see that old man again. <laughs> You'll never be that person again. You'll never be part of that again. You're leaving that behind forever. That's the very same thing Paul's saying here in Romans 6. Same thing that God was saying in picture form by the burial of the Egyptians in the Red Sea and the coming up of Israel out on the other side. And that's when you start singing. You know, they sang the song of Moses because of what God had done. Now, as we realize these facts then, this is what 
The facts are summed up briefly in verse 11. As we realize those facts, we're able to do what Paul tells us to do in verses 13 and, or verses 12 and 13. And this is the application of all the teaching and all the doctrine that has preceded. And notice again, doctrine, truth, always precedes doing or exhortation or application. Doctrine precedes application. When you start thinking about your life and you know you've got a change in this, that, or the other, the basis of change is not just going and trying to take hold of the problem. You're not going to get anywhere. The basis of change is to go back and spend ages on the doctrine. And isn't it amazing that Paul has spent six chapters, and this is the first thing he ever tells you to do. Six chapters talking about uh, sin and the condemnation of the Gentile and the condemnation of the Jew, the condemnation of the man with the Bible and without the Bible, and how man gets justified and how you cannot be justified by the law, and the nature of saving faith and the results of justification and what it is to be in Adam and be in Christ and everything. He hadn't said one word about how you're supposed to live. He's talking about the foundation, the truth. And he spends six chapters, six and a half chapters, before he even says one thing. And the first thing he says is, realize that all this stuff I've been saying is true. The first thing he says. Then you move on to the application. Now, doctrine is the foundation and it always comes first. Or I don't like the word doctrine because um, people get the wrong ideas of that. But it's what is doctrine? It's a description of invisible reality. It's a description of the way things are. And if you have wrong ideas in your mind about truth or doctrine, then you bang into spiritual reality. It's like walking through a room in the dark. Somebody tells you there's a table right there, don't hit that, and the table really isn't there, it's over here, and you slam into it. And if you have ideas, if you think, that somebody prays a prayer, you know, and quote, accepts Jesus, and that means certainly they're a Christian, you're gonna, you're gonna bang into reality. You know, and that's just one example. I mean, there's multitudes of them. Things that you try to figure, what is going on here? The Bible, I thought the Bible taught such and such, and that, this not happening that way. You know, aren't you thankful how realistic and honest the Bible is? It talks about everything that you know, many are the afflictions of the righteous and things like that. What if the Bible said the righteous will never have any problems? That would, that would hurt. So doctrine is a description of invisible reality and truth. What's really happened in the spiritual realm? And doctrine comes first and truth comes first. It's a foundation. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Why am I bound up? Because you're believing lies. Sanctify them. He's praying in His prayer to the Father. Sanctify them in thy truth. That's how you grow. That's how you become more holy. It's through the truth. Thy word is truth, he says. Sanctify them through the truth. And so, you know, a person can share wonderful experiences about God and everything else, but ultimately you've got to have some truth to build your life on. I mean, if you can't believe this thing, you're not, and if you can't understand it, then you can't make progress because you're always 
confused and going around in circles. That's why Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is not that long. But three chapters talking about, you know, being seated with Christ in heavenly places and how that uh, His power is working in us and all of these different things. All of that and how we've, how uh, we're new creatures. And then he gets to the point in chapter four where he says, I therefore, in light of all that that I've said, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of all this stuff I've been saying, the calling by which you've been called. You see that? So doctrine comes first. Truth is foundational to everything. But then, on the other side, doctrine must lead to application. And that's where you get to verses 12 and 13. So there's the other side of, it, of this thing. The purpose of doctrine is not to puff us up with knowledge so that we can say we know so much. The purpose of doctrine is to bring us closer to God and make us more pleasing and more glorifying to Him. In other words, it has to be applied. It is amazing, isn't it, how quick we are to follow after items. And you can even take Bible knowledge and turn it into an idol and worship that thing instead of letting that Bible knowledge lead you on to worship God. Incredible. Thomas Akempis many years ago said this, What good does it do to speak learnedly about the Trinity if lacking humility you, you displease the Trinity? Indeed, it's not learning that makes a man holy and just, but a virtuous life makes him pleasing to God. I would rather feel contrition than to know the definition thereof. <laughs> Wouldn't you rather feel contrition than be able to talk? That guy doesn't drink. He doesn't understand how to, what contrition is. I mean, listen to how he defined it. So, <laughs> and all the while, you're swelling with pride that that guy's humble. See what a, how absurd this is? What would it profit us to know the whole Bible by heart and the principles of all the philosophers if we live without grace and the love of God? Vanity of vanities and all is vanity except to love God and serve Him alone. Well, then in verse 12 and 13, Paul applies everything he's been saying and he tells us not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. I may not make it to verse 14. I'll do that next time. He tells us not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies, but to go on presenting, uh, and not to go on presenting our members to sin, but to present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness under God. Now, what I want us to see in, is this, and that is that there's a there's the negative side. Don't do these things, but you can't just stop there. That's not what the Christian life is. And a lot of times we get in our minds that holiness is, I don't do this and I don't do that. That is the first half of it. But you have to go on to the other side, which is presenting yourself to God and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. One of the old Puritans, I think it was, that talked about the expulsive power of a new affection. You know, when you're full, it's one thing to just try to quit this. It's another thing when you're full of love to God 
and it takes the place of that and pushes it off, pushes it out. And that's what true holiness is. Let's just look at a few verses on this out of Ephesians. And I think I think we're going to quit on this. And Lord willing, next time we'll center right in immediately on verse 14. Ephesians 4. And verse 22, he says, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, that is, his deeds, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and on the positive side, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now look at verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. See, you got both. You not just quit lying. Start saying things that are good and right, pure and true. The positive side. Verse 28. Let him who steals, steal no longer. But rather, let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. So here's a guy he's, you know, here's a guy that's used to stealing. To stop stealing. Well, he's not going to have much money, is he? But he says, then start working so that you can have plenty for yourself and enough to give to somebody else. And when that happens, you see that, that the old is laid aside and the new is put on. That's what he's saying back in Romans. Verse uh, 29. Let no unwholesome or rotten word proceed from your mouth but only such a word as good as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. So see, it's not just that you don't say the bad things, you start saying the things that edify and give grace to the hearers. Um, verse 31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. But the other side, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. And then as we go down to chapter 5, it goes several places down through here, but verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So, the negative put aside and pushed out by the positive. Well, how much should I say? Anything on 14? I don't I can't gauge how tired everybody is. Let me just say a little bit so we'll at least get into some new territory. All this brings us back in Romans 6, where it brings us up to verse 14. And verse 14 closes the first section of the chapter. There's two sections. He starts the question in verse 1 What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers it in terms of. Union with Christ. 
And verse 14 closes this section. Verse 15, he brings up the question in a little different form. And verse 23 closes that section. So verse 15 clo- or verse 14 closes the, the section that we've been looking at, but it also summarizes it. And if we could see this, why not continue in sin that grace might abound? Well, because sin shall not rule or be master over anybody that's under grace. It can't. It's impossible for sin to have dominion over a Christian because he's not under the law but under grace. In other words, Paul, what Paul is doing here in verse 14 is he's giving us an assurance that sin is not able to reign in the life of a Christian. Now, I hope I can get this across. Paul is not saying sin ought not to have dominion over you for you're not under the law but under grace. Sin ought not to be master over you. That's not what he's saying. It's not an exhortation. It's a statement of fact. It's a general statement of fact. It's not a command but an assurance. And again, he's not saying sin will not be master over you if you follow what I've been saying in verses 12 and 13. He's not saying if you do what I say in verses 12 and 13, then these results will follow. He's not saying present yourselves to God, present your members to God, then sin will not have dominion over you. That's not what he's saying. What he's doing is he's giving a statement of what's always true for every Christian, and he's using that to encourage you to go ahead and follow what he's told you in verses 12 and 13. In other words, the assurance of verse 14 is given as a motive and encouragement to press on in applying 12 and 13. Now, this is what he's saying. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't yield your members to sin. Yield them to God. For you know that sin's never going to be allowed to have the upper hand in your life because you're under grace. That's what he's saying. This assurance is the basis of the exhortation. So don't yield yourselves to sin. You know you're not fighting a losing battle. In fact, the other way around, sin's fighting a losing battle, and grace is never going to allow sin to reign in your life or to rule in your life. And so be encouraged. Present yourselves to God. Go along with what He's doing in you. Accept the inevitable. That's what He's saying. Now, how can He be so certain that sin is not going to rule in a Christian's life. How can you be so certain? Well, because Christians are not under law. They're under grace. And Lord willing, that's what we'll look at next time. Well, let's pray. Lord, we have no idea. It's that song, the very first song that we sang this morning. We have no idea how much we owe. Someday we'll get a glimpse and we'll know. Then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. And we thank You so much for what You have done for us. And we thank You, Lord, for every measure of help this morning that You've given us to come here and gather together as Your people. I pray that this time right now that we fellowship together would be fruitful and effectual and helpful, Lord. Help us. Lord, uh, mix us up if you want to and get us with other people that we don't normally sit with. And 
bless this time together in the things of God. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.